This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Katie O'Dell, who is a member of the editorial board of The Wall Street Journal. They discuss the changing environment on the political right, including substantive policy shifts happening at the Heritage Foundation and other centers of political thought and advocacy. Kate Batchelder O'Dell, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Roger. It's great to be with you. Well, you are a member of the Wall Street Journal's editorial board, and uh, you've been there for some time, I believe since 2013, where you were a Robert L. Bartley fellow. Uh, you cover a variety of issues, healthcare, taxes, and the one we'll focus on today is national defense. Um, and one in particular that came up related to national defense and, of course, to uh, an area of interest to the Ronald Reagan Institute was a opinion you wrote about a month ago called what time is it at the Heritage Foundation? And the subheading was Reagan's think tank sees America's on the brink of decline and incapable of helping you in Ukraine. What was going on? Just kind of scene set for us, Kate, uh, that brought you to write uh, this piece. Well, Roger, I think there's a large debate on the right right now about whether uh, America has the standing and ability to influence world affairs. Uh, and I would kind of characterize the argument that's emerged among um, some supporters, such as uh, the Heritage Foundation, that um, America is basically too woke and too broke uh, to be get too involved abroad. And this takes some different forms. Um, but the argument is essentially that our economic capacity has diminished since 1980, that uh, the culture is uh, so desiccated and that civil society is broken down. And so America needs to pull back from our commitments abroad and focus on our own domestic dysfunction. And so I really wanted to look at what Reagan had to say about um, those questions because I don't think they were new to him. And so two speeches that I spent a lot of time reading were uh, his Reagan's speeches at the Heritage Foundation in 1983 on the 10th anniversary of the think tank. And then he goes back in 1986. And some of the stuff he has to say there is really resonant to some of our current problems. Uh, the idea that America was in decline is something that Reagan heard all the time. And um, he made a, a sustained set of arguments that America had a regenerative capacity, that it had an ability to change course, and that um, our ability to solve problems at home, to do tax reform while we rebuilt the military, uh, that we could uh, handle multiple problems at once. And indeed, that was part of his kind of outlook on the world and a grand strategy um, that economic power was essential to military power. Um, and so I wanted to, uh, there is an argument about whether we're just updating Reagan's thinking for the current time or whether it is a new ideological direction on the right to say we shouldn't be involved abroad. And my argument is the latter, is that we are drifting from Reagan's uh, core animating ideas at a particularly dangerous moment in world affairs to do that. Well, we're going to get into the moment we're in uh, in a little bit. Uh you frequently write and, and discuss all the events around the world and, and what the U.S. role should be. But going with the history, the, the piece you just referenced, I mean, this idea that the U.S. is too woke and too broke, and that was quintessentially what Reagan was dealing with in his day. He railed against these, these issues throughout the 1970s before becoming president, where in his mind, the United States always had to lead. And no matter what the domestic challenges were, 
we are going to be better off as a nation in terms of the peace and prosperity if we continue to invest in America and invest in, in leadership abroad. So, you know, you could debate whether we're too woke, you could debate whether we're too broke today, but the Reagan response to me uh, is really not debated here. I mean, this is what he did in terms of challenging not just Carter in 1979, 1980 campaign, but when he challenged Gerald Ford for the Republican nomination in 1976, Kate, it was all about just this, that we have these problems, uh, but the response isn't uh, to invest in, in detente. The issue was his day, which was basically we're going to turn off, right, and and just imagine the war, Cold War is over, uh, but actually uh, look at the world through a, a moral lens and lead, and that ultimately uh, would lead to peace, a true peace and, and prosperity. So it's kind of the, the, as I read your piece, it, it was kind of shocking that to take this view would somehow uh, at the same time to, they could claim that they're still being true to Reagan. That, that, that's the part that really uh, didn't sit well with me. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, too, it can be easy to look back on uh, what happened uh, and what Reagan managed to accomplish and think it was inevitable to think that um, we were always going to win the Cold War. And so I think it also it is important to look at that history and note how much political courage and insight it took for Reagan to say, uh, no, the Soviet Union is not a permanent fixture of the geopolitical right. landscape. Uh, we win, they lose. I mean, that. Um, to borrow a quote from Will Inviden, uh, the Reagan historian, you know, that doesn't just happen where nuclear powers just disappear, right? So Reagan uh, had the strategic imagination and the policy to make it possible. So it doesn't strike me as plausible that Reagan would say now, well, I didn't see the problems getting so much worse or our fiscal problems getting so much worse. So I've changed my fixed view of the world. I think that is uh, just a credulous in, uh, way to apply what he had to say about how change happens in the United States, some of which um, was a heritage. I mean, I really zeroed in on this quote about um, that Reagan said, where sometimes uh, after a long period of frustration, change can some come so quickly that it surprises even those of us who make it happen. So I think the Reagan worldview was to argue for a fixed set of principles, even when they wax and wane in popularity um, and didn't have as much cachet with the public. And that that was successful because he stuck he stuck with it and that and kept to that fixed view. Well, and and I think to add to that, I don't disagree with anything he just said, but he believed that ultimately the American people were with him. And throughout his presidency, he took these ideas to the American people and, and, and they did. They sided with him in the end of the day, uh, which I think is also something to uh, teach us for, for this particular moment, whether it's supporting Ukraine, supporting ta Taiwan or supporting Israel. Um, you know, the, the, the strength that Reagan invested in was something the Americans wanted. Uh, and ultimately, the notion of peace through strength was something that. Reagan believed would keep Americans off of the battlefield. And, and that, that leads to something else you've written about in this piece. And of course, is where uh, Heritage and others uh, in, the, in, in the conservative world uh, seem to be walking away from. And that, that's a, the Reagan doctrine, the, the, this notion that uh, the United States should support people seeking freedom, defending their own freedom, um, and can make investment in it, uh, short of putting American boots on the ground. Uh, this is, in many respects, the, 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 the major fissure running through uh, conservatives today. Talk a little bit about the, the Reagan doctrine, and both in terms of the, the, the piece you wrote and, and its application to a few of their challenges I just uh, uh, raised. 
he Reagan had an ability to uh, blend realism and idealism. And one thing that Reagan emphasized a lot, um, even in that 1986 speech I was mentioning, was uh, we need a forward strategy for freedom. He he supported some of these countries because um, out of the inherent good of people who were fighting for their own uh, sovereignty and ability to fight for freedom. So it, that now is very declassé on some of these corners of the right to see, even say that there is a moral element of helping uh, those fight for freedom uh, as part of America's uh, national strategy. So that, of course, was, but that was central to the Reagan doctrine, in my view. Um, but practically speaking on uh, Reagan, was also on um, when I mentioned that blend of idealism and realism, he made a uh, compromise on that. Uh, he made compromises like arming uh, the Afghans in this right. in their fight against the Soviet Union. So he didn't let um, morality keep him out of uh, of supporting those who were uh, doing what was in America's interest, which was bogging down the Soviets in Afghanistan. And he also, we can talk more about this with Biden in Ukraine. I mean, he made large infusions into that program, um, arming the Afghans against the Soviets uh, to, uh, to make sure it was successful. And the goal was to get the Soviets out of Afghanistan by all means available, which is much different from our current policy toward Ukraine. Well, uh, there was always this notion of winning, right? I mean, so it was like once you made the strategic choice that uh, you're going to win, right, right. Then, then, then the investments followed and the action followed. Right. And what we have currently going on in Ukraine, I think some of the reaction on the Republican side to uh, Ukraine and the waning support we see for Ukraine is um, tethered to the Biden administration's uh, inability to articulate a strategy. Uh, I think as long as it takes is what the Biden administration has been saying. I think that's bad messaging. I don't think it makes it clear to the American public what we're doing there. Um, and they've also, you know, the Biden administration has been very very halting to provide particular weapons that Ukraine has requested. I mean, you hear when it's when it was tanks, well, we couldn't possibly get them tanks. We couldn't train them on them. And then suddenly those uh, objections disappear and we can provide tanks, but it takes us nine months to get them there. Um, we are a long way from the Reagan doctrine in some of these uh, programs. And that explains some, but not all of the the reaction to uh, supporting Ukraine, I think. You know, and, and that's a good point. And no doubt it's given uh, Republicans some pause, even, you know, kind of public, uh, prominent Republican hawks some pause in terms of embracing uh, support, continued U.S. support for Ukraine. Although that's where the congressional role can come in, too. I, mean, I don't entirely let 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 these members off the hook uh, pending before the Congress now is in a, is a supplemental appropriation. This uh, uh, emergency spending measure that president Biden has sent to the Congress uh, to provide funding uh, for Ukraine, $60 billion for Ukraine, uh, $20 billion or so for Israel, uh, less than $10 billion for Taiwan. Those numbers are just rough estimates. Um, Congress can, Way in here, and they could choose to add or detract, uh, put timelines attached uh, to these appropriations. So the notion that somehow um, you know one half of the political branches, as a legislative branch, uh, is just uh, kind of victim to the speed or the focus of the President of the United States is, is not entirely true. Uh, give me your take on that because the supplemental is pretty important. That's absolutely true, Roger. I mean. Also, you hear the common complaint about the Biden administration is that they don't have a strategy in Ukraine. Well, it's like, well, uh, and Congress could help develop one and sell it. And I think it's very obvious that the end state 
that the U.S. should try to achieve in Ukraine is that Putin doesn't gain any territory over February 2022, that he's not rewarded for this invasion that he launched on a neighboring country. And the folks who are criticizing Biden's lack of a strategy also don't articulate what their strategy is if we decline to keep sending weapons to Ukraine, because the answer to that is if we don't keep continuing to support them, Putin will win and he will gain, what, 17, 20 percent of the country and he will use that time to regroup and go back at it at the time of his choosing. And so I don't hear any reply to that. Um, from those who do uh, not want to approve further Ukraine funding. There is, there's no uh, strategy articulated on how this would end favorably for the United States and how, we can talk about this later, but how we would leverage that into some great success in Asia um, in deterring a Taiwan conflict. Well, well, picking up on that on that last point, you know, one of the arguments out there, it seems to be limited to kind of inside the beltway think tankery. Uh, I don't really see Americans making this point in terms of public polling so much, but nonetheless, it's an argument out there that, uh, you know, you focus on Ukraine to the exclusion of Taiwan. You have a similar argument. You focus on Ukraine to the exclusion of our border um, and that it uh, embraces this overall declinist outlook that somehow the United States is unable to do two things or three things or even four things across the globe. Um, you know, the Chinese economy is not looking so great these days. Uh, with Biden in office, you know, Republicans are 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 you know kind of always hesitate to give him credit on the economy. But even the Wall Street Journal editorial board pointed out recently that you know the, the this past quarter's economic growth was was something you had to applaud and and see as a good sign. Are we really declining at such a point that we can't do this, or is or is this declinism just a mask for you know a form of isolationism, which was always in the Republican Party, uh, but of course had been suppressed uh, during the years of uh, Reagan was in office and and in, in the years that follow up until the election of President Trump. Yeah, I mean, one one way I know something further is going on than mere just kind of practical objections to Ukraine funding. There was a vote a little while ago in Congress to strip out about $300 million for Ukraine um, from a spending bill. And that money was for the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, which just buys weapons from U.S. industry and procures them for Ukraine. A lot of the criticisms about economic aid, about funding bureaucrats in Ukraine, but 100 Republicans voted against this simple measure that really was about just lethal aid for for Ukraine uh, to kill Russians and evict them from their territory. So that tells me that some of these um, peripheral objections we've seen are not really uh, what's really animating the uh, debate. And also, to your point about this kind of new strand of isolationism, it is distinct from perhaps the 1930s Republican isolationism, because uh, now we have this growing sentiment on the right that America is a bad country or is a country that exports bad values to the world that doesn't have, um, like has a bad culture, a uh, bad system, uh, you know, government corruption. Um, that is a little bit distinct and something more we've seen on the left, um, which is that America is struggling too much at home to do anything abroad. But on the point about some of the broader consequences of this isolationism, I really think uh, it's a mistake to think that the folks who are critical of Ukraine now will show up in Taiwan's defense and uh, that we can simply um, bail out of Europe or just lessen our commitment there to some unnamed extent and focus on Taiwan. I mean, we should really think about what a fight for Taiwan would, would look like. Um, it would be um, enormously uh, costly if the United States got involved. I mean, casualties of 
on the order of what we saw in Afghanistan in 20 years and three weeks. I mean, this would require a large amount of national will and power uh, to, to stop an assault on the island, for instance. Um, and so I this idea that if you lose the muscle memory of talking about why America matters and the role, and you, you paint things as a territorial dispute, which is what Ron DeSantis called uh, the war in Ukraine, um, you're asking Americans to be cynical. And so you're not going to then turn around and tell them that an island thousands of miles away from them suddenly matters after you've told them uh, for years to just be cynical about what's going on in the world and that it doesn't matter and we should focus on our own problems. Yeah, and it's a great point. And you just have to talk to people in Taiwan, you know, starting with their president. Um, Recently had an opportunity to be out there and, and, and it runs deeper than the president across the country is they see the link between Ukraine and their own freedom. Um, that the measure for the United States commitment in their mind to Taiwan runs through their support for Kiev, Zelensky, and and the people in Ukraine. That is the way they view it, and that is the way adversaries, uh, no doubt, view it as well. And 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 just to build on that point you just made, even you think about a country like Israel, which of course, with the deadly massacre launched by Hamas on October seventh. You have, at least in one case, a conservative coming out and saying, I'm not going to support Ukraine and I'm not going to support Israel either, that we need to focus on uh, the border, which is a euphemism for basically saying we just need to spend funds on American needs at home. Uh, That's Marjorie Marjorie Taylor Greene, perhaps not the best indicator where the Republican conference will go, but very well could be uh, the type of mentality conservatives will adopt as they pick off one at a time Ukraine. You referenced Taiwan. I'm, I'm extending it to Israel. This whole set of arguments and, 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 and what you're responding to in your piece, obviously the Heritage Foundation was somewhat shocking and surprising given its origins really were with the Reagan revolution, but it's broader, as you point out, across the conservative movement. Again, I think it's a, it's a, it's a minority, maybe not, you know, not even polling more than maybe a third, maybe less of where conservatives are. But Kate, it could not happen at a worst time. You know, you referenced before 1930s in terms of where conservatives were uh, as isolationists. This is Russia on the rise in terms of their war on Ukraine in Europe. We have an Iranian, you know, backed Hamas, an Iranian backed Hezbollah, right? An Iranian uh, uh, proxies uh, operating even their own uh, uh Forces in the IRGC operating in Syria, dominating the Middle East now, getting the uh, that that's rising to be a, a regional war, and then you have China with President Xi choking Taiwan. I mean, the past two years, you know, year plus, choking Taiwan with daily aggression. Um, this is this is a moment where, in terms of glo- geopolitical uh, challenges, could not be more difficult for the United States, and yet we have conservatives going in the opposite direction. Am I overstating it, Kate? No. I mean, if anything, what I was going to add is that you also have a real degree of coordination among these powers um, working together uh, in these different theaters. So, for instance, uh, Iran is flowing drones into Russia's war in Ukraine. You had Iranian military personnel in Crimea training the Russians how to use some of these drones. The Russians are selling some 
more sophisticated aircraft and other training equipment to Iran's military as a thanks. We have North Korea feeding appears to be feeding artillery shells into Russia's war. Um, you have Iran and Russia working together in the Middle East to evict U.S. troops. And you have Russia and China in a what they call a no-limits partnership. Um, so you're developing here a real food chain of threats that are really consolidating against the United States. And for whatever differences in their particular brands of totalitarianism, have decided that they have a common interest in defenestrating the United States and that they're willing to set aside those distinctions uh, to achieve that goal first. And so that, I think, is another reason why we can't siphon off regions of the world. I mean, you talked about our allies in Asia see the stakes in Ukraine. The Japanese prime minister visited uh, Kiev to show his support, right? And so he sees the stakes there. Japan's a treaty ally, uh, sorry, Japan's a treaty ally in Asia. And you have China trying to be a broker in the Middle East um, against a, for Iran and Saudi Arabia and other issues. So this idea that we can simply focus on um, one of these threats is uh, just doesn't jive with what's actually going on and the extent of the coordination and how our our adversaries are using different theaters um, to their advantage. Yeah, and one of the, of course, underlying links in terms of these relationships, which you you know, rightly pointed out, all the different ways there's reinforcement between. Russia, Iran, China, you added North Korea, you can even talk about Venezuela. Um, you know, they are trying to suppress freedom in a day. There is this fear and concern, particularly with Russia and China, of free societies growing, influencing beyond uh, their borders into their territory. Now, uh, there is this language that presidents have used going back uh, to President Obama of you know, these endless wars, uh, the, the, the hangover of Iraq and Afghanistan, which sought to you know, free uh, the people of Iraq, interesting parenthetical, uh, as uh, troubling as some events in Iraq are, still democratically ele elected governments that uh, there is a different kind of, of, of democracy and freedom, but something there to show for it and parenthetical there. Uh, and then it raises this, this Reagan doctrine once again, which conservatives, but American presidents at large have, have, have gone in behind now, you know, in the, in the three plus decades since, that America should stand, should stand with free people. Do you think American people stand behind that cell? And I'll throw some survey data at you. Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think they do stand behind that. I'd also note, one thing you're seeing some is that some of the folks who are skeptical of Ukraine and making arguments that the U.S. should curb its support to Ukraine have been supporting Israel um, and trying to draw distinctions between what's going on in Ukraine and Israel by saying, well, Ukraine's corrupt or Israel is a closer ally. Um, but I think what's going on is that uh, world events made the isolationist position much less tenable um, because the U.S. is not going to abandon its strategic ally in the Middle East um, in Israel. And so that just, I think, really ran over the argument that America could pull back from the world. I mean, this crowd that is making these arguments, they have not been arguing 
arguing for an increased focus on the Middle East. They have been arguing the opposite. They have been arguing about forever wars that we need to get out of there and that we can just we should get out of Syria. Still arguing that. Um, so suddenly they're caught in this tension of being overrun by events, and I think this proliferating um, world disorder really is what we can expect when America does pull back. Because one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that. We did fail to deter Putin from going into Ukraine. Biden did say a minor incursion, you know, but that might be acceptable. Um, this is starting to be and some of what Biden has done in response, I think, is is good. And I give him credit for it. But we do see some some tea leaves here of what it looks like when American American military power is fading, when a political will is in question, divisiveness at home. This is this is what it looks like. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that as you were speaking. I wanted to go to. What do we need to do to restore deterrence? Because you can look at all of this and merely, you know, just say, summarize, this is a function of lost deterrence that the United States and Western countries writ large uh, basically um, got, took their eye off the ball, um, became too inward focused. And as a result, uh, autocrats uh, have, have sought to exploit the space. Um, one of the things you write about in your piece is defense spending. Uh, another signature element of Ronald Reagan's time in office was right. the military rebuild, right? The buildup of the military, uh, which had declined during the Carter years precipitously, but the decades prior, really since uh, Kennedy uh, was in office. And then of course you had the Vietnam, uh, which followed. It was a mess in, in, in every measure, modernization, conventional capability, personnel. Reagan worked to restore all of that. There is a great need to do that today. Yet getting even to 3% GDP seems to be a struggle. Uh, Congress over the past few years uh, has added to the president's request. Uh, but again, pockets in the conservative movement will tell you that we can't do it, that we can't afford to get to the 6% GDP numbers. And as you point out in your piece, uh, they will even make the claim that American people will not stand behind it. Now, that's simply not the data as, as, as we know it here at the Reagan Institute. We, as you know, we, we do a survey annually on the subject and Americans vehemently oppose uh, 60 plus percent uh, cutting national defense. And you have about 70% who would support increasing national defense and it falls uh you know kind of lower or higher along if you divide it by party lines so there is support for the american people if a leader uh would choose to pursue it six percent gdp beyond the pale kate uh well when you go back and look at defense spending as a share of the economy you do see us at real historical lows, despite the threat from China, particularly being potentially more acute than the Soviet Union was. And so we were at 6% back during the Cold War, but 8% in Vietnam, 11% um, during the Korean War. Um, and that downward trend, uh, the economy is also getting a lot larger. So I do think 6%. Um, it should be incumbent on those who oppose it to explain why it's not tenable, given that throughout history, when America has needed to reorganize its fiscal priorities to defend itself, it has done so. Um, so I do think, too, back when you know Eisenhower was talking about the military-industrial complex, military spending was half of the federal budget. We're down to <laughs> We're down to 13% or so now. We are at the point where net interest on our debt is outpacing spending on our military. So I don't think the public understands 
that we are, have a smaller, less capable and less ready force um, than we have in a long time. Really, the last comparable period might be that that Reagan period. And some of the the equipment that we have, we're really still living off that Reagan modernization in a lot of ways. So I want to I think that share of economy is important because uh, I think there's a lot of hope that we could do something on the cheap here. We could do some reforms at the Pentagon, many of which I would support. We could build some drones. That seems to be the Biden administration idea to counter China. We can do some discrete things and uh, get out of this on the cheap. And I don't think the historical record supports that idea. And I think we should be honest with the public about what's going to be required and that some of these elements of the conservative movement have traditionally been essential as parts of building that broad coalition um, for a military that's equipped for what the world demands. We are with Kate Batchelder Odell of the Wall Street Journal editorial board. She covers a variety of issues for the editorial board, including national defense. Kate, you're a close watcher of our national politics as well. In particular, uh, you comment and write frequently uh, how our elected officials uh, view national defense. Take us uh, through the Republican field. Uh, Mike Pence, who was great on this issue set, from my perspective, and I think from yours too, uh, has bowed out of the race. Uh, those leading the field, President Trump, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, they generally, uh, I mean, President Trump's a little harder to predict where he'll be because that's his personality, um, but are not lining up with the Reagan doctrine per se or uh, building up the military to the levels we had the, during the Cold War. In terms of this new axis that we were discussing, who's out there that really seems to get it? I do follow national politics for my sins, uh, as we say. <laughs> Um, but the presidential field has been a mixed bag. Uh, I will give Ron DeSantis uh, some credit uh, for his, he gave a speech late last week on Friday at the Heritage Foundation, actually, where he did <clears throat> at least lay out a discrete plan to get the U.S. Navy fixed and larger within his two terms in office. Navy's at about 300 ships. It really that's uh, China's already at 370 up from 340 last year and that they are big building modern surface combatants. This is not just a, a type paper tiger buildup. It is substantive. And so Ron DeSantis has put out a, a plan to grow the Navy that I think uh, is perhaps the most substantive in the field, but he's made it harder for himself because he has um, been uh, all over the map on Ukraine, calling it a territorial dispute, uh, some bromides about how Europe should do more. And I think that has cost him because it doesn't seem as though he really means that. And it's it's kept him from developing a more coherent theory of world affairs of the variety that Reagan had and voters found persuasive. Um, you do have Nikki Haley, who has some credentials on foreign policy from her time at the UN and who I think has been at least articulating why Ukraine matters and why Ukraine uh, is part of deterring China from taking Taiwan. Now, I think uh, there, Vivek Ramaswamy, of course, has been um, and has had multiple iterations of his views on Taiwan, um, but just by itself. But he is largely calling for America to pull back from the world. Has said that perhaps getting out of NATO is a reasonable idea. Um, has said we'll defend Taiwan only until 2028 when we have semiconductors built in the United States. And as if the only reason we would de defend Taiwan is because it's, it's uh, you know, a floating semiconductor fab, um, which I think is wrong and doesn't explain to the public why Taiwan matters. But 
at the same time, so the presidential scene does look um, a little bit rough at this point, but at the same time, I do think that the there is a growing bipartisan consensus in Congress that is going the right direction um, at the pace that um, the system will allow. So I, I mean, I throw out Rep. Mike Gallagher on the China Committee, who does seem to understand what the core challenge is uh, in the Pacific. And he also, I think there's a lot of value in some of these innovative ideas. We think getting to 6% of defense spending is essential, you and I do, but even we don't have to wait to get there. There are things we can do. We can build more long-range anti-ship missiles. We can put them on more planes. We can pre-position weapons in Taiwan. So I think there are lawmakers who are looking at this with a really innovative eye to do um, the most that they can while they try to build that broader support for a defense buildup. So that's that's my uh, my cautiously. Okay, wait. It's always, it always feel better when you end with Mike Gallagher. I'm I'm with you on that. But uh, well, pursue one one more on the political front since you went to the Congress. You know, the the person who has led the fight loudest and strongest on 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 this set of issues has been Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader uh, in the Senate. Uh, We'll see if he remains atop. He's had health issues, uh, but the Senate is definitely in play for Republicans uh, as we go into election season. Uh, and then, of course, we have a new Speaker of the House in Speaker Mike Johnson. Views are, are less well known, but his record on supporting Ukraine uh, looks more like, um, you know, the the approach that we've seen from uh, Senator Josh Hawley and Rand Paul and Mike Lee uh, and what we saw from the Heritage Foundation uh, than it does Mitch McConnell. Uh, that could change once you have the, the burden of leadership and reflecting the views of a conference. It's a Republican conference in the House of Representatives, which still has a majority, more than the majority uh, of Republicans, I think, that would uh, want to support Ukraine based on some votes earlier this year. Um, but we have this supplemental coming up and we have uh, appropriations bills coming up for, for, for defense. Do you think the Republicans here are uh, in the House are going to continue to kind of buck, well, buck the trend that we're seeing from some of the uh, neo-isolationist camps or will they start to reflect it? Well, I think Mike Johnson, the things that he's said so far have made me cautiously optimistic that, you know, taking a vote against Ukraine on your own capacity uh, <clears throat> is one thing, but then when you're elevated to lead the entire conference, <clears throat> your responsibilities are are different. And I also think since that Ukraine vote where he voted against further aid for Ukraine, the situation in Israel has, uh, which I think is strategically linked to what's going on in Ukraine, has made the politics um scrambled a little bit in a way that I think lends itself toward getting a supplemental through Congress. And again, if there are discrete Republican complaints, you know, there's, I think, about $11 billion in economic support for Ukraine, then they can pair that back. The EU has launched a, some multi-year economic support for Ukraine, quite a bit of it, actually, for all we talk about how Europe is not doing enough. Um, so there are opportunities for Republicans to put their own stamp on money for Ukraine, focus it on lethal lethal assistance if that's more um, important, and also uh, to get some of their own ostensible China priorities into this bill. I mean, so the supplemental request that Biden laid out, he gave a speech about the world inflection point, right? And then he followed it up with a supplemental request that was very uh, small for the Pacific, only $2 billion in security assistance and for every, you know any friend in the region, not just Taiwan. Um, and so followed it up with a very weak Pacific request. And this is the one part of the world where conflict is still 
preventable, where we can still make a real difference in what happens there. So I think it would also, Republicans can build a broader pol political coalition if they uh, get some more uh, weapons for Taiwan in the bill, and also uh, make it about the American military and our ability to defend ourselves. Okay, we are having, uh, we, have, we don't have enough in long-range anti-ship missiles, we don't have enough naval strike missiles. Um, these are great long-range weapons where we need to fire a thousand, twelve hundred if we got into a conflict in the China, in the Taiwan Strait, and we only have you know a few hundred of them. That is a national security crisis, and the Republicans should have some party credibility to expand U.S. weapons stocks and get going on that, um, and and sell it to voters as we're working on America's ability to deter and win conflict, yeah. not not Ukraine. Couldn't agree with you more. We'll move to lightning round in just a minute. But the, the 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 point you just made, I mean, this is fundamentally, this should be the opportunity Republicans come in and talk about building up the arsenal of democracy. This is about our industrial base and, and making the investments necessary um, so that we can defend our interests, which, you know, you, you talk about the insufficiency of our industrial base today, and then you kind of pair it with China's industrial strength, military industrial strength. And, it, and, it, and it's quite shocking. Uh, and it, it, it's urgent, uh, and the U.S. Congress is best positioned to refocus what Biden sent forward uh, to address that urgent need, which you know we'll, we'll see what comes out of the Republican House. Um, I'm not optimistic they'll make that change, but I, I think we should be pushing for it. Comment on that. Yes, that's right, Roger. And But I would just say again, in the Reagan spirit, there are things that we can do that make a real difference. And one of them, you know, we talk, I'm sure your listeners know a lot about attack submarines and how they're a real U.S. advantage, but we don't have enough of them. Too many of them are idle. If we could get to two or three attack submarines a year as a national project, that would make a huge difference in our ability to deter conflict in the Pacific. So I think we should hold in tension this idea that the Pacific deterrent situation is maybe worse than most of the public understands, but America's capacity to handle it is better than advertised. And that even some of these discrete projects could make a real difference if we get started on them. Great point. We're with Kate Batchelder Odell, the Wall Street Journal editorial board. We're going to go to our lightning round. This is where we ask our guests their favorite Reagan speech, book, and quote. Uh, of course, we discussed two of Reagan's speeches, the 1983 and 1986 speeches he gave at the Heritage Foundation. Feel free to offer that one or another one. What do you have? My favorite Reagan book is Will Inboden's The Peacemaker. I think it's an excellent narrative account of his foreign policy. Um, but I want to give a quick quote that I think um, from one of the heritage speeches that goes to the heart of what we were talking about and that he told the Heritage Foundation in 1986 that the toughest job in Washington is being able to tell the difference between the tides, the waves and the ripples. And that sometimes being too close to something means you miss the real opportunity for the chance to change. And that is what I think is part of what's going on um, in the Republican conference, that we've gotten too despairing, too far and we're not, we're missing the ripples and the tides and the waves. Kate, thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Roger. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.